Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the new novel, Missionaries. Our crack producers, Adam Kamara and Alex Brooklyn of Racket Media. And our guest today, the distinguished and Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction book critic at the Washington Post, Carlos Lozada, who's also the author of the new compendium, What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era, uh, a book that is ranging and uh, witty and uh, a, a kind of, how would you put it, somewhere between a, a a survey and a book review and a psychoanalytic portrait of an age. Um, that's how I would put it at least. But uh, Carlos, how would you put it? No, that's, that's the blurb that I want. That's perfect. <laughs> Phenomenal. And then the work of art is Garth Greenwell's short story, Decent People, uh, from the collection. Phil, remind me of the name of this new collection. Cleanness. Well, it's sort of a, it's sort of a novel um, uh, or sort of uh, – but yeah, Cleanness is the book. Okay. So we'll be getting to that later. Um, but Carlos is somebody we've wanted to have on for a while. Uh, he's a, a really fantastic book critic, uh, very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, frankly, maybe I'm trying to put this in a way that doesn't insult other book critics unnecessarily. <laughs> but, um, Go ahead. I, okay, fair <laughs> enough. I would say uh, more curious than, yeah. uh, you know, a, a curiosity that is – engaging and I would consider essential for the task of book criticism and yet seems to be unfortunately um, if not in short supply then in insufficient supply in the trade uh, so somebody who I think we both pay close attention to and who we're thrilled to have on so Carlos before we dive into this it has a very interesting origin story as a kind of audacious idea that you had in 2015 that led to this book. You want to retell a bit of that? Sure. Uh, and thanks for, for having me on. Um, I'm, I'm a fan from early on of the podcast. Um, so yes, this was a book I never really planned to write. I had just become the nonfiction critic at the post in early 2015 and so I was only in the job for a few months before Trump launched his his candidacy for the Republican nomination. So once he was doing really well in the polls, I thought, you know, maybe I should read some of his his books. Um, you know, even even ghost written books can be very revealing of how someone wants to be perceived. So um, I approached my editor and I was like, look, what if I just read a bunch of Trump books and see what they tell us? And the answer was yes, but hurry up because this isn't going to last. You know, who knows how long people will be interested in Donald Trump. Uh, and I, you know, I, I pretty much agreed. So I read a bunch of his books and wrote a piece about him. And I thought that would kind of be it. But of course it wasn't. And then suddenly he starts winning primaries and people really want to know about his supporters and all these books about the white working class start coming out. So I started reading those and writing about them. And 
then he wins and resistance books start coming out. And suddenly I realized that this is my beat. This is what I'm going to be doing at the Washington Post. Um, and that all the big battles of the Trump era, so to speak, would be litigated, uh, partially at least in, in book form. And so I just started reading both one-off books and kind of clusters of books. If there were a bunch of books out on the debates over truth under Trump, I would tackle them together, identity books, democracy books. Uh, and I would say that about shortly after the 2018 midterms, probably early 2019, I started thinking about how to, or whether there was a, a larger uh, story here, whether I could look at all these books collectively and try to say something about them. So it was going to be just a, a piece I was going to write for the Sunday Washington Post. And I started working on it and I quickly realized that A, I had much more to say than I could possibly cover in a single piece for the Sunday paper. But B, that I had a lot more to read. There were a lot of books that I'd missed uh, over the prior you know, two or three years and books I knew were coming. So it seemed kind of ideal as a, as a book project. And I took those few thousand words I'd written for the piece that never was and uh, transformed that into a book proposal. And the, How many the, total yeah. books are covered there? Um, I say it's about 150. Um, I, I read a good bit more than that for, right. for the – just in the course of writing the book and, and writing for the post. Um, I think that it might be slightly under 150 that are explicitly mentioned in the book, but certainly a lot more books kind of inform that, uh, what, what appears in the book. Uh, you know, I read a half dozen books about impeachment that aren't explicitly in here, but right. certainly in, informed my thinking on it. So that's, you know, but that's only a fraction of, of, of the Trump books. I mean, there's about, there's more than 1200, uh, Trump books, um, and compared to about 400 for Obama's first term, you know, which so I he, bet you was more than there were for Bush's first term. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I don't. I don't know the numbers, but I would be shocked to learn otherwise. No, but it's um, this phenomenal kind of escalatory. You know, it's like Obama was the guy who, you know, had generated this kind of media fascination, and there was all this yeah, what celebrity president, to some people, right? Celebrity president, and he was nothing compared to what we have now. Which, which we're revisiting, you know, this month. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I really enjoyed this book, and I wasn't. You know, I, I figured I would because I really like your work. Um, but you know, if you, if you told me, I mean, there's nothing that I would rather like read less than, than, than a Trump <laughs> book, right? You know, like this is, there, there are I hear a, you. <laughs> a whole lot of books that you read on our behalf <laughs> that I'm glad for. And, but you know, beyond just, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about this is it's not just, not just books about, Trump. It's a. It's um, it's you looking at all the books that are trying to grapple with this moment in our kind of collective history as a as a democracy, right? And it's not just like an intellectual history focusing on the giants and the truly brilliant thinkers. Though there are a lot of books in here that you clearly very much admire. You're also interested in you know the snobs, the toadies, the narcissists, the bomb throwers, the clueless who are shaping our thinking as much as sort of more incisive commentators. And um, you know, as I was thinking of this, um, you know, in terms of 
you know, what we're doing here. This is, um, it's almost like a, you know, if you think of like a, those medical studies where they do a meta study of studies, right? you know, right. for, you know, this is manifesto. You have done like the meta manifesto, right? <laughs> where you're kind of collecting all of these different, um, arguments and, 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 and stories grappling with the, the contemporary moment and seeing, you know, sort of holding them up to the, uh, up to the light and, and, and seeing which ones offer us a way forward. Uh, and very early on in the book, you have this comment that I thought was great. So you're talking about the Trump books and you say, as a publishing phenomena, they have succeeded. Less so, I fear, as an intellectual project. The best of these works combine urgency and insight, timeliness and timelessness. But too many books of the Trump era are more knee-jerk than incisive, more posing than probing, more righteous than right, more fixated on calling out the daily transgressions of the man in the Oval Office, this is not normal, than on assessing their impact. They are illuminating in part because they reflect some of the same blind spots, resentments, and failures of imagination that gave us the Trump presidency itself and that are likely to outlast it. Individually, these books try to show a way forward. Collectively, they reveal how we're stuck. That yeah, it's the line. collective quality <laughs> that, uh, you know, the, the accumulation of those blind spots and also the accumulation of the sometimes limited um, insights, but even just the accumulation of perspectives creates a, a kind of, you know, a, a, a fuller three-dimensional picture that isolating the best of these books, I don't think would have yeah. accomplished, you know, it's including the lesser books um, and also the, the kind of sequence of them yeah. is interesting and revealing. Like Carlos, a moment ago, you talked about how the first genre was the white working class books. Right. And so that's like yeah. Tim Carney's book. Um, oh, oh, but also in that section, you, you know, it begins with you, you keep running into Ed Harry and that's, mm. um, you know, you're talking about the, <laughs> the lesser books. <laughs> Do you want to just explain who Ed Harry is? Yes. Um, so, uh, this is the the opening chapter of of the book, um, and it's about the cluster of books that I called Heartlandia. It's all the all the books about the white working class. That uh, books like Hibbley Elegy, of course, you know what that that was um, sort of the first big Trump book, even though it wasn't about Trump at all. But in the course of of some of these books, I ended up reading maybe maybe a dozen of them. Um, I read one called The Great Revolt by Selena Zito and Brad Todd. And uh, it was a very typical book of this genre. They went out and interviewed a bunch of uh, Trump voters um, throughout the uh, throughout the country, really. You know, it was it was it was not just clustered in one single area. And there's this person they talked to in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, named Ed Harry. And he was your classic, you know, Democrat who flipped to Trump. He was a, a former labor organizer. A uh, he'd, he'd even been been a delegate to the '92 convention that nominated Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, he was very much a a Democrat in this you know Pennsylvania town. Um, but he moved to Trump, and the reason he did in this book is because he was basically your economic populist type voter, right? He, he worried the Democrats had forgotten working people and he was mistrustful of trade agreements and he hated political dynasties like the Clintons or the Bushes. And that's why he switched to Trump. So that's, that's fine. You know, I, I read the book, I reviewed it. I moved on. 
And a few months later, uh, I'm reading, you know, and several books had passed in between that I had read and reviewed. And uh, a few months later, I'm reading a book called The Forgotten um, by Ben Bradley Jr., a longtime Boston Globe journalist who um, was looking at Trump voters in Pennsylvania. And suddenly I encounter this guy, you know, and he had been a longtime Democrat, labor organizer, delegate to the 92 convention for Bill Clinton. I'm like, wait a second. I know this guy. Like, how do, how do I know this guy? Why do I? No, Ed Harry, Luzerne County. And I start looking back in other books and it hits me like, oh, my God, this is the same guy. Right. Which first tells you something about kind of the formulaic and repetitive nature of the genre. But. What was fascinating was not just that two journalists profiled the same dude. What was fascinating is that Ed Harry's motives were pretty different from one book to the other. In Ben Bradley Jr.'s book, Ed Harry is like a full-on culture warrior. He's a 9-11 truther. He worries that George Soros is funding Black Lives Matter. Um, You know, he rails against transgender bathrooms. And it's just like, what? Is this the same person? Right? And And what was fascinating to me is that, you know, I don't I'm not like, you know, making a case that that any of these journalists is is acting in in bad faith or being deliberately uh, misleading. But I think sometimes you you see what you want to see. And Ed Harry's motives were very different um, in these two books in ways that neatly coincided with each author's explanations for why Trump won. And so that to me was this just revelation moment. And um, I knew I had to start the book with, with Ed Harry because it moved the focus toward the, the way that ideas are presented and interpreted. And that's what I really wanted to grapple with in, in the whole book. All right. There's a, there's a great line in there. Many of the intellectuals who have traveled through Trump country, because that's what you call a chunk of America when it's only salience is electoral often generalize what they encounter into a collective feeling, right? Anger, despondence, hope, resentment, naivete. Um, and it's that that sense of sort of <laughs> the, the intellectuals sort of traveling through Trump com- country and sort of uh, attempting to find sort of material for their, for their theories that you get a, a strong sense of um, – Early on. And then it kept oh, on, it kept on yeah. going too, right? It kept right. on going. It was, it was, then it was just basically go back and just ask like, still, still, do you, do you still like him? You know, like that became this whole sort of genre of, 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 of writing, even of journalism, you know, it's just like, let's go back to the same diner and let's, let's see if, you know, if they're still with him. Surely this moment, you know, makes them want to, to leave him behind. You know, it was, it was just an odd, an odd fixation that uh, has lasted you know, until until we discovered suburban moms in 2020, and and that became the new fixation. Some of this is a reflection of the the way in which uh, you know local journalism has collapsed over the last 15 years, right? Like the the it's not just that there's been this enormous loss of jobs, particularly sort of mid tier uh, reporting jobs and and editing jobs, though there has been an enormous you know the the industry is uh, half as large as it was, uh, but it's also this, the regionalization um, and the concentration of um, journalism in what Michael Lind, in a, a book you talk about later, 
um, here uh, that uh, the new class war that Carlos deals with in a later chapter, what he calls hub cities. But the the regionalization, the, the hyper concentration of journalism in these hub cities creates uh, this phenomenon where large swaths of the country um, can be reduced to these pretty ridiculous cartoonish types, you know, a certain kind, like you can just get more over on people because of the lack of sort of day-to-day familiarity. So the, the suburban mom, the, um, all things to all people, Trump voter. I think some of that's a, a reflection of the ways that journalism has changed over the past 20 years. Yeah, I think that's, and that's a huge that's a huge problem, right? I mean, I think my 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 colleague at the Post, Margaret Sullivan, has has just written a short book on on that subject. Um, you know, because and, it, and it's not just a way to allow national audiences to understand, um, you know, uh, culture and reality in 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 distant towns. It's also just a way for um, for local journalism to you know to to root out corruption and government malfeasance at the local level and you know and you that's have the like, more important thing yeah, even. yeah. You have one person one person covering this you know the the legislature and the governor and, i mean it's 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 impossible right it's 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 really really hard um and i think you know we we focus on what's happening in sort of cabinet agencies but you know so much of of corruption happens locally right um and that that kind of coverage is just lost as as well. It's it's um it's it's a real tragedy. So so that's one of the sort of more obvious sort of blind spots, right? Um, that you mentioned in, in in the introduction to the book. I was wondering what what were the other you know what would you describe as sort of the other kind of blind spots, resentments, failures of imagination that mm-hmm. that uh, that most struck you right when you were yeah. going through these works and writing the book. I think the. Well, the, the the second chapter of mm-hmm. the book covers a lot of the the resistance, right? Resistible, that, that, the title, crack me up. Yes, yes, <laughs> that, 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 that came next, right? That was sort of the next big wave um, mm-hmm. after a lot of the, the, the white working class books. Um, and I mean, this is only a, a rough chronology. These books kind of come and go throughout the Trump presidency. But um, what you had right off the bat um, – just even before the inauguration, like between the election and the inauguration uh, and, you know, 2016, 2017, um, you had, you know, immediately these, um, you know, quick turnaround anthologies of basically people getting their friends together to to write sort of like-minded, you know, like morose essays about like how awful everyone felt on election night. And that became a genre. Like it's, it's the how awful it felt on election night books. And the thing is, I, I get it, you know, like, like yeah. I, I completely understand. And they make a very clear case for why, why they felt terrible. But after a while, I just didn't, I didn't care anymore. I, I, I didn't want to read those anymore. Um, and what I, and they sort of kept coming throughout 2017. And yeah, I mean, I get how you might've felt that way. I don't get thinking that that's a book that needs to be published, but. Right. Certainly not like many of them. Right. Yeah. And, I remember and, uh, somebody after the election, somebody paid, uh, you know, like the bus advertisements, mm-hmm. um, you know, the bus stops in, yeah. on by the Waverly Diner um, on uh, in uh, Greenwich Village, the bus stop right there. Somebody paid for an advertisement and it was just a, a sort of 
blank and it said, we're sorry, white people, <laughs> which was an interesting response yeah. that somebody would have sort of shelled out money uh, to do that. But, you know. Yeah, no, that I mean, that was that was um, actually that kind of sentiment uh, clearly animated a lot of these these anthologies. And I I completely understand the the impulse to, uh, you know, express how you feel. And that's that's absolutely you know, I've, I have no no issue with that. And um, what what was a little disconcerting is that, you know, these these books and it, it kind of set the tone for a lot of um, a lot of the the writing on this subject um, just were very much completely insular, just preaching to the choir, preaching to themselves, like actively, uh, you know, discouraging disassociating themselves from, from anyone who wasn't sort of a hundred percent on board. Right. right. And the, the, the argument there was, um, look, we have to retrench into, you know, we feel under attack. And so we have to retrench into like-minded communities. Um, and I, I understand the impulse, but I question the, the usefulness. And because I, I think that, you know, you can be so worried about Trump's America, but not really care at all about Trump's Americans, right? And yeah. and that's what that's what 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 happened with this kind of literature. And you know, like a lot of those people were the ones who were expecting that 2020 would end up being this huge repudiation of Trump and Trumpism. And now, guess what? They're shocked again. They're shocked right. again that like 70 plus million people voted for for Donald Trump. And, you know, one of those books um, that I actually found more more useful was um, this book called Rules for Resistance that looked at similar cases in lots of other countries that had gone through something like this. And it's this stark warning. They're saying, please don't do what we did. You know, like we completely, you know, whether it was like Venezuela or Turkey, and it was like we completely um, – you know, rejected and, and mocked all the people who had supported, say, Chavez. You know, it's like, and like, how could you, how could you be so stupid? You know, this guy, are you serious? You know, and what they ended up doing uh, was, you know, as they put it in this book, is fracturing this country for a generation. Right. And, and you know, I, I, I don't see any huge signs that we're moving in, in a different direction from that. Yeah, I think one of the themes that comes through sort of in the aggregate in the book is a a slippage between the personal and the political and you know then in perhaps an even more explicit way between the spectacle and the event but i i'm profoundly alienated by this whole genre of emoting as politics in part because i think like the the we're sorry white people sign bus sign right to me is like a kind of performative therapeutic act that's about personal ego and about, uh, you know, a kind of uh, centering, if you will, of personality that takes the place of the political. And in addition to just, you know, again, like <laughs> I find it profoundly alienating on a visceral level, but I also think that it, it ends up occupying a space where politics ought to be, you know, mm -hmm. and um, has now the, the thing with Trump in part is that 
it's all of this, like all of this slippage, you know, in the, insofar as Trumpian politics is a cult of personality, it, I think evokes a similar response in some ways on the other side, but it fills a space where politics ought to be. And there are these moments later in the book, there, there are a couple of moments that stuck out to me where people sort of break character. Like I remember at one point, cause I guess I, I forget which chapter this is in, but you're talking about Mattis's memoir and how Mattis doesn't talk about Trump in his memoir. Mm-hmm. And this is later in the book, but it just, it was like, so out of character sort of with the rest of what surrounds it in a sense, like Mattis after everything, he just general Jim Mattis after everything he had gone to gone through all, all this sort of, uh, you know, and he had his own high drama with Trump, but in his own book, you know, he sort of held to this professional career, uh, Marine or, or career soldier line that, you know, you don't write about the president. Um, I don't know. The the contrasts were very, the contrasts were interesting to me and something like that with Mattis stuck out because uh, yeah. it seemed more and more rare. You know, the, the thing with Mattis, um, I wasn't going to mention his memoir in the book at all. And then, uh, because, you know, it wasn't, it was almost incidental that he had been Trump's defense secretary. It was, it wasn't, it was about his whole career and it, it, it barely touched on, on anything in his latest incarnation. And so I thought it wasn't really entirely apropos, but then Mattis came out, you know, he, he wrote this letter that was published in the Atlantic and other places. And, you know, he's just so critical of, of Trump kind of once, once, you know, a lot more people had been right. And, and I remember thinking like, well, what, why wasn't this in his book? You know, why right. didn't he say anything when he had, you know, this huge uh, stage to say it in, in the book? And in fact, I went back at the, you know, to the book and I saw that, you know, there he had just kind of talked about their first meeting and how Trump mm-hmm. was, I remember what, what the adjective was. Maybe he said, you said amiable, amiable, amiable. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, and, you know, and later, of course, we've learned through other reporting and then through Trump, through Mattis's own statement later on that, you know, when he was, when he had written that book, I mean, he had already gone through, through hell with, with Donald Trump. And so I was, I was a little perturbed. Like if you're going to, you know, I don't know. It just, I, I felt that there was a kind of an inconsistency there yeah. or that, that needed to at least be cited, you know? And so I was like, well, I'm going to both quote from his, his book and from his letter and, right. um, and, you know, just at least allow people to kind of wrestle with that idea that, that, you know, Mattis wrote a whole memoir um, and, you know, in that memoir, Trump is amiable. Um, and then in the summer of 2020 or whenever that, that letter came out, you know, suddenly Trump is like a threat to the Republic. So, you know, what's interesting there, and I, I have a lot of criticisms of, of how Mattis handled that role, though I think it's, it's, I think one of the things that a lot of the former generals have done is, They've occupied political positions, right? Um, and this this goes for for Kelly and Mattis. You know, these are political positions; they're not military positions. But then they've acted as though the sort of institutional rules guiding prevented uh, them from being political. Yes, 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 right. Which is, I think, sort of fundamentally dishonest. Um, same with same with uh, McMaster. I think 
Yeah, McMaster, I mean, God, McMaster, of course, will give an interview to the National Review where he, you know, makes a big deal about how you need to be professional and you can't talk about the, you know, the the president and he's not going to comment on that. And then he'll like slam Joe Biden's foreign policy skills uh, in the same interview, um, you know, right before the election. And it's kind of, you know, it, it, it's just you feel like he's, he's just playing a game. Um, but the. You know, the, I suppose, you know, if you, if you were to view it from Mattis's perspective, you know, one of the things that you talk about, certainly in the, in the Snyder book, um, mm-hmm. there's how this focus on institutions and how pro- professional groups and institutions distinguish themselves by upholding their rules and behavior in extraordinary times, right? And mm-hmm. you later seem very attracted to uh, Yuval Levin's book about institutions, yes. right? Given your role in this institution, how should you act? Given your role in American democracy, how should you act? And I think what Mattis would probably say was that, you know, he accepted the roles that therefore he shouldn't, you know, turn his back on the president. But when the president did something which was a threat, which was not sort of a kind of a policy difference, but something that was sort of a threat to the institutional ethics of the military, right? Which was what that Lafayette Square, you know, he wrote the letter in response to Lafayette Square, which Mm -hmm. is when... You know, you had a general in combat fatigues going through after tear gas had been used against peaceful protesters, which, you know, is a, is a very dangerous point for civil military relations. And the last thing that the military should even seem to be involved in, um, that that was when it was, you know, from his mind, right to come forward in his capacity as a sort of retired general, I think. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I think it was him in a complicated situation trying to figure out what the, you know, what his role within the various institutions of professional groups that he's been a part of demanded of him. Now uh, I will, you know, note, as I said before, that in accepting the political role, right. I think that the, the generals tried to have it both ways. Um, But I think that that would be, you know, probably his response that, right. Mm -hmm. Like if, if it really is important that, institutions and professional groups, you know, um, maintain their code of ethics that they don't become wrapped up in, you know, everything needs to be about the political moment, right? Um, And everything gets decided, you know, by where you are in the political moment and this kind of sorting. I mean, like I was in a job interview at uh, a public university, a well-regarded public university, we'll put it that way. And uh, I was asked basically about why I hadn't tweeted about the Kavanaugh hearing, right? Oh my God. Really? <laughs> no, no, this was the beginning was there, of the interview. I come in. Was there any way in which that was relevant to your job that you were the, going to be uh... teaching creative writing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I come in, it's like the chair of the English department. This professor comes in and says, I hope you don't mind if I read my hate mail first. This is how the meeting starts. She starts opening letters, right? Um, and starts explaining that she'd taken some public stand on the Kavanaugh hearing. This is right afterwards. And then she turns to me and says, so I read your Twitter account. And I'm like, you know, okay. Like my Twitter account is not that exciting. It's like mostly military stuff, articles by, you know, people I like and, um, I don't know, weird things about old books. And, uh, and then she goes, you know, I noticed you don't take any controversial stands. And I started like defending myself. Like, no, I, I make comments controversially in, all kinds of places and became quickly apparent um, that the controversial stands that I had not made were the sort of political 
uh, stands of the moment. Yeah. The controversial stands you had not made are, are the ones that are enforced within, with unanimity within her peer group. Th- those are the controversial stands, the right. ones that everyone she's surrounded by agrees with. But I mean, I, you couldn't provide. Which means they're very, uncontroversial. Of right. course, of course. They, yeah, they are entirely uncontroversial. You know, right. they're, they're the, you know, the enforced consensus, which is why <laughs> yeah. Phil is such a deviant for. Um, not having participated, but it's also a kind of perfect illustration of this, the personalist politics, everything from the reading these aloud in front of you, which is such an ostentatious move, right? Um, but just a final thing on the generals also, listen, the, the, the situation with like generals vis-a-vis Trump is, seems to me to be disastrous in a thousand different ways, not least of which is, you know, like the Brennan approach to a kind of hyperbolic, all out partisan Trump is an agent of Putin, um, making kind of flailing, unsubstantiated remarks on cable news shows that welcome him as a guest creates a, a, um, I think a, a kind of counter pressure for some of these generals in political positions to then be perhaps more reserved than they should have been at moments um, mm. or, or to kind of hew more to a kind of uh, – actually, as I'm saying that, I don't know if that really holds up perfectly since, uh, you know – Kelly friend- Kelly really picked moments to, to kind yeah. of break, yeah. break kind of the institutional um, – you know, like restrictions or codes, I think, uh, yeah. when he was, when he was chief of staff. This um, is the kind of whole thing though, right? Like, and this is another one of the themes that runs throughout this book and the Levin, uh, the Yuval Levin book. Um, what's the name of that one? Um, a time to build a time to build, right. It is maybe sort of like the, the archetypal example, but it's this question of, the the breakdown of institutions, the consequences of the breakdown of institutions and the feedback loop that that creates in a sense where uh, with institutions already broken, it generates a degree of volatility that then further breaks down the institutions. Um, and this seems to just be the case across the society. If you've read Jacques Lule's book on propaganda, do do you know Lule at all? I haven't. I haven't. So, so French sociologist, he's this basically argument about sort of propaganda in the modern age, and you know one of the things that he talks about is how like you need a ma- like a mass society and an individualist society for propaganda to work, right? And, he, and he's like points out like those seem to be like opposite things, mass society and, and an individualist society, but they actually go hand in hand because sort of kind of previously people had been enmeshed in community and family and church and these sort of like, you know, um, smaller scale uh, organizational components of the society. Um, but as those break down in the 20th century, uh, what you're left with is the individual uh, who finds himself directly vis-a-vis the entire society, right? Um, he's 
free, but then has to judge everything for himself. He has to make his own judgments and, you know, uh, thrown entirely on his own resources. He can find criteria only in, in himself. He's clearly responsible for his own decisions, both personal and social. He becomes the beginning and end of everything. Before him, there was nothing. After him, there will be nothing. His own life becomes the only criterion of justice and injustice of good and evil. In theory, this is admirable, but in practice, what actually happens? The individual is placed in a minority position and burdened at the same time with a total crushing responsibility. Such conditions make an individualist society fertile ground for modern propaganda. Yeah. I actually quote Elul from Propaganda, the Formation of Men's Attitudes, in a piece I have coming out in the next um, week or so. Uh, and, and just to add one thing to that, which definitely resonates with uh, Carlos's book, the other thing Elul talks about is how presentism is necessary for mm -hmm. the propaganda to be effective, um, you know, essentially this sort of riding the current of news events in which there's never any time for real reflection, uh, you know, I think in a fairly mm -hmm. obvious way, it makes people susceptible to, um, to manipulation and to, to propaganda efforts. Um, well, there, there's, there's too much to judge, right? Um, there's too much to actually understand, you know, take in and interpret. Uh, so, um, not only interpret, but also take a position on, right? right. Like, like it's, I mean, like, like why haven't you tweeted about Kavanaugh, right? You, right, like, right, so you sort of have right. to, you have to weigh in on, uh, you have to make clear where you stand. Right. On, you on can't so possibly know there's too much, and yet it's compulsory to have a right position on all. Of it's also like it's not, it's not enough to like like I don't. I didn't want, I don't want Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court judge. Like, it's not enough to like privately not want it, right? Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it also goes in line with this is kind of like blizzard of information. I think of like the, the sort of Steve Bannon line of like, like flood the zone with shit, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, on one level, but on another, you know, there's like the, um, uh, you know, science over fiction, right? Like, you know, we're going to follow the science line which drove me nuts as like a parent in New York city when I was thinking about schools, because it was fairly clear that the invocation of science was actually just masking political decisions that were being made. Right. So like I'd sit in, you know, this information session over the summer uh, with the chancellor Carranza and he's like, you know, we're going to follow the science, not science fiction. Meanwhile, like I know, you know, the CDC has different guidelines from like pediatric associations because they have different mandates, different missions, different things they care about. They're both following the science. And oh, by the way, like how this actually is going to work out in, pro in, 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 in practicality, like is going to be about a negotiation with like unions and, and various different interest groups within the city. But then you're going to tell me that you're just following the science, uh, uh, as a way for me to feel as if the decision has already been made um, and there's actually no place for political deliberation. Um, I don't know. Uh, but to actually get a grounding in, <laughs> in the sort of rapidly changing understanding of the science anyway would require a sort of full-time effort. I think that's a good segue actually into a chapter I wanted to talk about, which is uh, the Chaos Chronicles. Um, mm -hmm. so like we mentioned earlier, the book is organized in, uh, there's 10 chapters, um, and each one is organized around a cluster of books around, you know, broadly around a theme. So, 
resistance books. Um, Me too. Me too. Identity politics and sort of counter identity politics books. And then uh, uh, Russia and, and Russiagate stuff. And then the Chaos Chronicles to me is uh, was one of the most interesting chapters because it captures something that's almost like the emotional and um, uh, the, the inverse as spectacle, the opposite as spectacle of deference to the kind of rational, implacable veneer of science. And that's the the chaotic Trump White House that it, what's so interesting about um, this idea of like the chaos of the Trump White House. And um, Carlos, I, I want you to talk more about this because you have obviously the better sense from having read all these books. But the thing I wanted to say is what seems so interesting to me in part is like how it works for both sides. So people who want to you know, criticize the Trump White House, uh, you know, attack it, depicted as being chaotic, ramshackle, like sort of blundering, uh, you know, and, and like basically insane on some level. Um, and some of them do this in an almost self-aware, like the Michael Wolf book, um, which sort of leads off the chapter. I forget the title of it, but it seemed the Michael Iron Wolf Fury. Iron Fury seems seems like like there's almost and I thought I kind of thought you were implying this also stop me if I'm wrong but like that with Wolf there's a level of almost cheeky not cheeky but like a level of self-awareness where he recognizes that he is playing up a kind of hysteria that has in part been performed for him by people like Bannon, that he's been given a spectacle and then he's he's dramatizing the most lurid aspects of a spectacle that in some sense has been put on for him. But it's also like this is this was part of Trump's appeal on I, I think a fairly deep and instinctual level for not just the you know kind of prototypical uh Pennsylvania uh, culture war populist, but also a class of intellectuals for whom Trump was this chaos agent. Um, I don't know. It was, it was about it was about disruption, right? That was the you know he's going to be a disruptive force. He's going to drain the swamp. He's going to upend everything, and so it's chaos, you know, allegedly by design, right? Um, as opposed to just being kind of what ended up happening. And Wolf, Wolf had the the sort of first mover advantage, right? His was the first book um, that came out like this. And, you know, he's even suggesting that, you know, Trump and Nikki Haley are having an affair and, and right, there's, right. All this, there's all this kind of just mayhem, um, largely sort of like in a, in an as told to, you know, by, by Steve Bannon kind of vibe. Um, but it really set a template, I think, for how even far better books by, by, you know, by kind of more, um, you know, by the book journalists um, that that would come next because they all just became this competition for, you know, who's got the craziest, you know, expletive filled anecdote uh, to tell you. Like, you know, can you believe Trump did this? You know, like he, you know, he wanted a moat with alligators on the border. 
you know like it's like doc it's like <laughs> wow doc this is a real dog, thing you know? this is a real um, thing that carlos mentions in the book that comes from the wolf book that they wanted a moat with alligators yeah, no, that, that that wasn't in the in the wolf book that was in um, a really good book about Trump's immigration policy by um, Julie Davis and Mike Shear, these two New York Times reporters. But it had, you know, like, and part of it is the way we discuss these books because, you know, the coverage just fixates on like the craziest stuff that right. each book reveals. And so, you know, Trump wanted a moat with alligators. That's another on one, though. Like, it's sort of you know, the same thing. Like, are we sure that the moat with alligators idea? was, you know, I don't know how it's conveyed in their book, but that just seems to me like the sort of thing that could easily have been said as a kind of hyperbolic taunt almost. I mean, how do they report it as something no, that's and said that's, earnestly? That's that's the issue with, with a lot of these these books, you know, that that they they tell you something that was said, right? Like I, I have I have total trust in these to journalists, one of whom I've, I've known for a long time. Um, and, you know, but I don't know um, how seriously to take it as a policy proposal, right? right. In part because, but that also is the, it, it's, it's not necessarily the, the journalist's fault in the sense that like in this administration, you know, whenever Trump says something kind of nuts, then half the time it's like, well, he was, he was mainly kidding. You know, right. and, and, and it, as as a defense mechanism afterwards, and yeah. so I don't think we can fault, you know, in in too many cases the the journalists for reporting that this thing was said because we don't know how to take how, I mean, how to, seriously to take one or the other. Today, as we're recording this, Rudy Giuliani gave a press conference while his hair dye like sweated and streaked down his face that Biden had stolen the election because of a voting like software conspiracy involving the Clinton Foundation, George Soros and Hugo Chavez, Chavez yeah. and the, the you know the 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 like communist money from Cuba and China and Venezuela, right? So like it's like a terrible novel. Yeah, like you can't like how <laughs> in there it's very difficult to find like how do you soberly report on that? Right. Mm -hmm. In a way that doesn't involve insanity um, and sort of ridiculous over the top details of the sort. I mean, th this is the thing. It is it is a administration that is geared toward the spectacle. Let me uh, propose so, yeah. let me propose a theory that is going to come off like a, a Trump defense. And that's fine. <laughs> if it works. OK, um, I know this. uh line from Emerson from Harold Bloom, but it's a, a line that stuck with me. America is formless, has no terrible and no beautiful condensation. Um, but America is vast, you know, perhaps not, not quite formless. There are a multitude of forms, right? You know, it's almost like the, uh, the antithesis of Whitman's multitudes in some sense or the obverse or something. But, um, Here's here's what I want to say that will sound like a crypto Trump defense, and that's fine. <laughs> um, what I want to say is that the it seems to me that the the whole Trump presidency has been a series of what I would call kind of um, actually Scott Alexander, the Slate Star Codex guy, is a good name for this. He calls them the scissor moments. You know, right. there are these kind of epistemic fractures where 
you have this cleavage where people just can't arrive at consensus on something. So prior to the Trump era, the kind of classic case was the uh, was abortion, right? But abortion is actually not an epistemic cleavage. It's just a moral difference, but it's an unbridgeable moral difference that stood in for all these other unbridgeable uh, or stood in for all these other uh, attendant um, differences of values. The case for Trump always was that if you have a society uh, in a sufficiently advanced stage of sclerosis and decay, that the normative procedures of the institutions, which had once been essential to the order that allowed for the flourishing of people within that society, will have become corrupt in a way, not where they start to produce disorder, but where precisely they maintain order, but the order now no longer uh, rewards the people who deserve to be rewarded and instead uh, rewards the undeserving. And typically, the undeserving in this case will just be a smaller and smaller class and typically a kind of quasi-hereditary class, perhaps a corrupt elite, a decadent group, et cetera, et cetera. This was always the case for the uh, what I thought was the, the sort of the best case for Trump. Um, and, you know, it's a case that I have – uh, stated my own disagreements with in the past, and I'll, I'll get to those in a moment. But because we were just talking about, you know, institutions and the role of institutions in society, I'm bringing this up. Now, how would you know if you were in a society um, in which that had become the case, where the institutions, which had once been essential to the flourishing of the society, had now become um, instead sufficiently corrupt that they that they were now a hindrance to the flourishing of society. Well, one of the ways you would know is if, um, you know, people's basic needs were no longer being attended to by those institutions, if they were no longer serving the people they were supposed to serve, um, if the, you know, the, the goods um, flowing out of them were go- going to a smaller and smaller group of people, if, uh, you know, if you were becoming a gerontocracy, Right. As America is literally becoming a gerontocracy. Both of our presidential candidates in the past election were in their mid to late 70s. You know, these variously are signs. Now, I'm I'm not uh, I don't think ultimately this argument works uh, or it's certainly it's not that the diagnosis is wrong. I think the diagnosis is absolutely correct, actually. Um, I just think that Trump was not the guy to deliver on this because he is fundamentally um, juvenile and incompetent, um, not because his attacks on the corruption of the institutions were wrong. I mean, the best example of this to me is the handling of the COVID crisis, which is, in, in my opinion, has a lot to do with why he lost the election. You know, if he had cut, you know, if he had forced through another stimulus package and been, um, marginally more competent in his handling of this and had not made statements that were later revealed where in February he was acknowledging that he knew it was airborne and he understood the severity and then yet would go on to describe it as the flu and and all of this partly to keep the stock market ticking up, which, you know, is like in its own way, the most venal and corrupt possible thing you can imagine, right? To deliberately allow a plague to spread in order to 
to maintain the you know the good order of the markets is basically unconscionable thing to do and at the highest level a quasi criminal thing to do in terms of the abdication of leadership i say all this because you know i'm trying to like extract something carlos has this this survey of all the kind of the various swirling roiling uh uh, perspectives and and theories and ideologies of the Trump era, and many of them revolve around this question of the state of the institutions in America. And um, oh man, before we <laughs> stopped recording, I knew where I was supposed to go. With this <laughs> and I, like totally lost track of it. But um, but uh, on some basic level, uh, what I fear is. Uh, what I fear is that the 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 fundamental problems that gave rise to Trump uh, have all uh, remained. Here, here's what here's what I, I think I was going to say. I can't say for sure, but I think what I was going to say is that the fundamental problems that gave rise to Trump have remained within the institutions, and right. because Trump's successes, such as they were, were you know attacks on the administrative state or counter-institutional, even where he did good things like getting out of Afghanistan, for instance, which there's a bipartisan opposition to, um, the, the institutional momentum is all continuing in the same direction. And so the, the thing about like the Trump era is that it's, exists entirely outside of the institutions. Here's what it is. The Trump era exists entirely outside of the institutions, which is in part a testament to the way in which it's juvenile, right? Because it's like, uh, on some level, a fundamentally ridiculous theory of governance, right? That you could, in America, in 2020 or 2016 or whatever, work entirely around the institutions. You know, it's this sort of Bannonite, you know, rhetoric that plays well on a radio show, but then leaves you unable to accomplish any of the things that you talked about. Um, but, but it, it means that you now have the institutions that society relies upon and particularly a society of this size and scale, um, I, I think have been organized for the last four years in this sort of all out battle with Trump. And I don't know, are, are they going to turn towards in a more serious and fundamental way? Are they going to be turned towards attending to the, um, the needs and concerns of common ordinary Americans who don't want to exist in a state of permanent um, culture war approaching um, I mean, I, I, I don't think that, that um, increasingly politicized, uh, weakened or corrupted institutions is the way for better providing those goods. That's the, um, I mean, I think that's, you know, so. But the like, institutions themselves are powerful, right? So right. It's, they, they are, I don't think that they're, um, I don't think that the fundamental damage to American institutions begins with Trump or ends with Trump. No, 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 certainly not. Right. But he also tries, he doesn't just work around them. He, he tries to enlist them in, yeah. in, in, you know, and that's, that's, 
that's what makes it sort of all the more insidious, I think. Uh, you know, one one way in which this is kind of captured in in an individual is looking at how um, how perceptions of Robert Mueller have changed. <laughs> you know, if you if you look at the first two the first two years of the of the when Mueller was doing his investigation, and you know, he was hailed you know, universally at first for, you know, he's the right guy to do this. Even, even, you know, Lindsey Graham, you know, people like that were, um, right, were Trey Gowdy were, saying good were, things about him. Initially. Yeah. And they were, you know, and, and that was, um, you know, why? Because, you know, he's, he's by the book, he's an institutionalist, you know, he, he won't bring his own, um, you know, his own politics or his own views. He'll, you know, he'll do a thorough investigation. You can trust Mueller, protect Mueller, Mueller will save us. You know, that was, that was, that was the whole thing. And then, but once, you know, that, you know, once the office of the special counsel, once this, this great institutionalist was the subject of all these, you know, amazing profiles, once um, he didn't deliver sort of what particular groups expected him to deliver, suddenly like, you know, Mueller was the wrong man at the wrong time, right? right. Mueller, Mueller got played. Mueller, you know, and and I started seeing this in all the books that started coming out, like from the beginning of this year. Um, you know, in the a lot of the 2020 books were were precisely about that. You know, you start seeing like, oh, you know what, he Mueller blew it. You know, Mueller Mueller wasn't ready. You know, and then he start. You know, it was from from um, what was that that first book from a, a very stable genius by my 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 colleagues Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig. You know, they they you know, start pointing out sort of ways in which, in which Mueller had kind of like, you know, blown the moment. Um, Jeffrey Tubin's book, uh, you know, the same thing. Yeah. yeah the, you know, I guess before, before, um, before the great scandal. Um, and, um, and then even Mueller's own, you know, Andrew, Andrew Weissman's book. Um, and suddenly, you know, I feel like that's a legacy of the Trump era as well. That kind of shifting of standards, um, that you see embodied in the way people talked about, you know, the great institutionalist Robert Mueller. Yeah. Well, you know, well, it, nail, a, nail that down, though. Sorry, Phil. Just nail that down for me a little bit more. What is the shifting of standards? It's that when Mueller fails to provide the outcome they want, he goes from being the good, upstanding uh, upholder of standards to being a kind of to being the goat. To be, yeah. I'm trying to see what was. If we're allowed to quote Jeffy Tubin anymore, the um, go ahead on this show, yes. The um, so this is a pro Jeffrey Tubin quoting show. <laughs> um, I like barely knew who the guy was before this whole incident, so I'm afraid I mostly know him in regards to his um, indiscretion. Mm-hmm. So, in his book "True Crimes and Misdemeanors," that is is a very good. Uh, overview of of the Mueller investigation and 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 Ukraine and impeachment. Um, you know, Tubin concludes that you know, quote Mueller had come of age in a different era in American justice and American life when modesty and self effacement were ascendant values. There was something admirable in his embrace of this vanishing world. Then and always, he kept to his code of personal honor. That was both his greatest strength and his greatest weakness. And I think it was only seen as a strength uh, at the beginning. Um, right. And I think the the assumption that um, you know Mueller was going to 
to deliver, you know, the the definitive eviscerating indictment of of of, of Donald Trump. Um, you know, when when that assumption failed to be fulfilled, um, then suddenly, you know, all the reasons that people had had um, loved Robert Mueller and praised Robert Mueller became the reasons to uh, to criticize him. And and, you know, institutions um, aren't supposed to, um, you know, prejudge outcomes uh, in 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 the processes that they're that they're going through. I mean, that's the whole point. The whole point is that, like, you know, it's it's easy to stick to your rules when times are normal. It's like it's precisely when times are abnormal that that, you know, that's why you have codes of conduct. That's why you have um, norms um, for for abnormal moments. And I I think that the the evolution in the way that Mueller was was described and and judged um, is is another legacy of 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 Trumpism. Yeah, you know, as you talk about that, I think of this this relates to the, the chapter on truth, right? All these books about about truth. Um, I'm just thinking too of Samuel Moyne had a, an essay out, a pretty good essay called "You Have Misunderstood the Relevance of Hunter Arendt," right? Um, where he writes, "In their invocations of Arendt as theorist for a new age of post-truth, her new fans missed that she argued that truth and politics have never mixed. On the contrary, politics is a realm of appearance, not one of correspondence with fact. For Arendt, we've always been post-truth." Um, and I think that's sort of, you know, they're kind of the outcomes that you want, and then the, you know the reality gets manipulated to conform to that or reinterpret in front of that is, is feels like that process is, has been on hyperdrive. You know, we could, we could go on and talk for a long, long time about your book. I mean, we haven't even touched on the sort of me too chapters and the chapters on identity and immigration, um, which I think in my notes on your book, I'd spent most of the time on um, <laughs> because uh, you know, I think sort of later in, in the book, you see the books that matter most right now are not necessarily those revealing White House intrigue, policy disputes, or official scandals. They are instead the books that enable and ennoble a national reexamination. And sort of, you have this sort of complicated um, approach to an understanding of identity politics as being important, though identity identity politics of a particular sort, right? Um, which you see as going hand in hand with individualism, right? That sort of group identity. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say that it's, it's a, a very, I think it's an original, uh, it's an original synthesis. And it yeah. comes in part, I think, from the way that the chapter takes these various, like, again, it's like something that maybe, I mean, Carlos, maybe you had that idea after reading one book. I'd be interested to hear if that's the case, but it feels to me like that's the sort of insight you'd sort of, you'd need to read six or seven books to recognize that this is the dialectic between them. Oh yeah. I, I, um, I cannot generate any insights from reading a single book ever. I, I need to I need to have a lot of books in in conversation uh, with with each other and certainly in the identity chapter that was that was a big part of it. It seemed to me originally that you know the fight was um, between you know people like um, you know Robin D'Angelo and White Fragility and then you know Mark Lilla and and um, the Once and Future Liberal you know and and. You know, and those being, 
you know, the, the, those two polls suggesting something like, you know, on the one hand, you know, group representation and group identity is sort of all that matters. Um, and, you know, Lilla talking about national identity and, and citizenship is the one identity we should really embrace. Um, but reading a lot of these other, other books and, and memoirs of identity, you see that even people who became, you know, leaders, whether activist leaders or, or intellectual leaders in what for better or worse is, is known as identity politics right now. Um, you know, they, they came at it just purely from, um, you know, a, a quest for individual dignity. Uh, and, and the memoirs, like, um, when they call you a terrorist by, by Patrice Kahn Cullors, who was one of the, one of the founders of, of, of Black Lives Matter, um, you know, is a, is a great example of that. Ibram Kendi's book, um, um, how to be an anti-racist has, has moments of that, um, you know, where it's, it's interesting because, you know, Kendi operates in so many different spaces. He's, you know, he's a historian, he's an activist, he's a, a memoirist, you know, and like, uh, you know, he's on Twitter. I, and, and, and sometimes I feel that I, I get different versions, you know, where, you know, of, of, of his arguments in, in different places. Um, but even his book is, I think, um, even though they're often, they're often purchased together and discussed together, his is a real contrarian, uh, view, um, versus say Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. And that, you know, he, he says in that book, you know, he, he doesn't want to, um, you know, cast, you know, all white people in a certain light or all black people in a, in a certain light. Um, you know, he just, he kind of wants to be treated as an individual, you know, more than but anything. He, but he wants to be treated as an individual within a system of totalizing and flattening, uh, racial guilt and justice. No, I mean, like the thing, the, the interesting sort of dialectical quality. And I, I don't think it's just in the identity politics chapter. I think there's like one of the things that thematically and structurally is compelling in the book is the way there are all these sort of dialectics that play out in the sequence of the chapters. Cumulatively, you, you feel these things in conversation or, or read these things in conversation with each other. You know, the, the uh, white working class chapter and the uh, resistance chapter, et cetera, et cetera. But with Kendi, what you end up getting is a a reckoning with historical injustices that produces a totalizing um, and essentializing vision of uh, retrib- retributive racial justice in the present. I mean the the kind of foundational concept of anti racism as any. Uh, any inequity in outcome in the present is evidence per force of legacies of discrimination that can only be um, justly dealt with through positive acts of discrimination seems to me like fundamentally anti-individualist in its conception of politics and justice, even if Kendi in the kind of memoirist moments of the book is trying to stake out a position of individual dignity. 
you know, Wesley Yang, who's another guy who you deal with in that chapter. Yeah. I like his book. Yeah. Wes is a, a very good writer. And, um, one of the things he's written that I find very interesting and compelling and that you touch on here is the way that, you know, something like a, um, a concept of the microaggression, right. Which is sometimes sort of brusquely written off by conservatives or people who call themselves classical liberals or whatever. Like it's just a kind of, um, like a petty grievance or something, you know, that like, no, no, actually, um, these things feel like assault on your dignity as an individual when you're on the receiving end of them. This, this thing that has the name microaggression describes something real, something diminishing, something which may very well be characteristic to all heterogeneous societies and not just ones organized along, um, you know, American racial lines, but, but that, you know, in a, in a country like America where we have this ideal of individual equality and, and, uh, individual dignity is particularly, um, causes a, a particular kind of injury that, that what ends up happening is the recognition of the microaggression after the, after the, the resolution of the legal and de jour systems of discrimination in trying to find a remedy for itself becomes a kind of permanent legacy of racism that becomes amorphous and diffuse and can never actually be resolved. And that the, the farther, the further in time you get from the redress of the actual de jour discrimination, the more something like a microaggression divorced from kind of liberal procedural notions of inequality and discrimination, the more it takes on a kind of, um, uh, almost personal therapeutic quality. Um, I, I, that tension is, it seems to me plays out in, uh, work from somebody like Kendi. And I, I don't doubt that he, that there's a, a demand for individual dignity and recognition, but it, it doesn't square with the conception of racial justice. He's advancing, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that I I understand the argument you're you're making absolutely, and and I think that's that's part of what I what I mean that I see like the the first book I read by Kendi was Stamp from the Beginning, not How to Be an Anti Racist, right? Which is an historical book, and yes, yeah. yes, but I but I think that they're very they they can be useful together. Often, you know, I I know people who are like you know going out and getting How to Be an Anti Racist, you know, and 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 and, and white fragility. I tell them to sort of you know try to read. Um, stamped first but like one one difference that i see for instance um and it's just it's sort of just a blunt simple one between say what robin d'angelo is saying and what ibram kendi is saying is that for d'angelo being white in america means you're sort of like irredeemably at all times inevitably racist and um and what kendi is saying is that you at every moment um, have a choice to behave in a racist or anti-racist manner. Now he defines that in very explicit, even dogmatic terms, but there's, there's a difference there. And I don't, I don't know that it's, that it's, that it's, you know, just, I don't, I don't know that it's a forced difference. I think it's a real one. Um, but I think that, that 
Wesley Yang in in some ways who I I only know through through Twitter where he where he terrifies me and um, and, and 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 through his book where he, he he only kind of terrifies me is is that he I I think you're 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 spot on in the way you're you're interpreting him I I sort of saw him as as sympathetic to the kind of grounding of the notions such as such as such as microaggressions um especially when you know when it's just like a repeated game when it's just a, you know it's it's sort of a, a, a relentless part of your of your life even if he if he has serious reservations about the way that that reality is then interpreted as to you know well what do we do about it you know how do we how do we sort of stop this but but that's like i mean there was just this thing i can't remember on one of these stupid things on Twitter that people start, you know, giving their answers to. And, um, and it was like, you know, what do you, um, what do you hear that, that, you know, it doesn't seem like it's an insult, but you know, it's an insult or something like that. And like, and, and people started talking about, um, uh, you know, like, Oh, you speak English so well, you know? Um, or for me, you know, uh, who I, I, I'm from, from Peru, um, originally, um, it was more like, um, oh, you don't, you don't even have an accent, you know, like, and it's supposed to be a compliment, but it's not a compliment at all. You know? mm-hmm. um, and I think that that Yang sort of gets at the kind of just kind of beating down nature of of um, of what that of, of how that 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 cumulative aggression goes from feeling micro to feeling very macro. Yeah. Yeah, Jake, should, Jake, should, yeah. should we? Because so, we've been going for a while. We should, we should probably talk a little bit about immigration because I thought it was a very interesting part of the book. And then we we got to go on to cleanness, or sure. this episode's going to be like uh, a million hours long. I, I mean, I, I think. Sorry. No, no, no. no this it's is, an interesting conversation. Phil, you drive the drive the yeah. ship. No, this is. I mean, this is this is great. I mean, the the. the I mean, part of the part of the problem is it's a really rich book, so there's a lot that we can talk about. Um, you know, you just mentioned being originally from Peru, and I thought the the immigration chapter was really interesting. And again, you do this thing where there's <laughs> it's that it's that sort of dialectic. Um, you're very skeptical of the kind of national back padding. This is America. How could this happen here? Attitude. Um, and you write, it is the lot of every immigrant to straddle borders of all kinds and at all times to gaze back with relief, but also nostalgia, to look forward with hope and insecurity, to strive to belong even while we get the hint. Right. And which was, I thought, a very evocative uh, way of uh, discussing it. And then later in terms of, um, and also seems related to that um, discussion of, of the microaggressions, um, you talk about the sort of debate over what the, you know, what the immigrant novel is, is going to be. And the, there's the American mm-hmm. dirt uh, controversy. And you talk about how it, the great immigrant, immigrant novel need not focus on the border. It would privilege individuals over categorization, right? And uh, immigration, to me, seems one of those clear areas where the debate is very much within America about American self-conception and, um, you know, what we would like to be. Uh, And uh, what... (laughs) <laughs> what was it, I suppose, well, one thing I, I did want to ask you is, uh, 
you, you know, there's is this land is our land, an immigrants manifesto. And I thought maybe we should do it on the show because it's probably worth um, worth its own discussion. But oh yeah, um, where no, where do you see immigration as fitting into sort of the American kind of self conception, or at least the debate over immigration? <laughs> Let's just let's just do it in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> um, so nation of immigrants, right? It's it's yeah. just one of the it's I, I have this this idea for for another book um, where I would take all the um, almost just catchphrases that America has <laughs> has told itself <laughs> about itself, you know, throughout right. like land of opportunity melting pot, you know, uh, exceptional, American exceptionalism, shining city in a hill. Won't it be nice to get to America where we don't have to worry about cats anymore? There are no cats in America. And and try to do kind of what I've done in this book, but but for each of those and bringing in books and art and 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 theater and film to try to understand each of them. Um, That's a great great. idea. You should should do that. (laughs) And, um, and nation of immigrants is, is one of them, right? Nation of immigrants is absolutely one of them. It's, it's so central to what, to the way people in this country think about themselves and why people come here. I mean, that's why my, my dad brought us when I was a kid and, you know, and that's what he, that's why we're here. That's why he, he believed in this place. And, and so, but at the same time, you know, there's there's just an equally powerful strain of of xenophobia and and rejection of of outsiders, um, and that was evident to me. That came really across really powerfully in a book called America for Americans mm-hmm. by Erica Lee that that shows that interplay, you know, and and America's both of these things, right? And so um, being being needed, right? America needs immigrants, especially now with the labor force. You know, like America needs immigrants, but being needed is not the same as being wanted, right? And and in that sense, I think that it's this this tension that has come to the fore so much in the Trump years. Like, what's what's weird about Trump is that he's brought so many of these things together at once. Like, you know, all these fights um, simultaneously. Yeah, right. But but. But all these fights are fights this country's been having for a long, long time. Trump is just like really talented at kind of like making us fight over all of them at the same time. And, and that, that tension over, over migration is just ever present. And so in that sense, you know, the answer to both of them is yes, right? Like, like yes, it's a nation of immigrants and yes, it's a nation that rejects outsiders. Um, I don't know that it's Trump's talent to be able to talk about them all at the same time. I mean, here now I'm going to start subscribing to like one of the esoteric Trump theories, but it seems to me like the, the many crises converged in the years leading up to Trump and that it had been some ways a long time coming. And, you know, it was wage stagnation. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the, the outsourcing of the country's manufacturing sector, um, you know, it was a breakdown of uh, local social services at the intermediary civic levels, all, all these things. And then Trump in his kind of um, 
you know, like uh, emperor buffoon persona was able to just, because he said everything was able Mm -hmm. to kind of touch on all of it in a way. And because he was sort of so brazenly indifferent to uh, the things you weren't supposed to say, but what's interesting to me in part, right. Is the way in which, um, you know, I'm trying to think how to put this like the, so Trump, Trump, uh, improved in uh the latino vote across the country maybe uh not in every place clearly but i think up by something like 30 percent in the aggregate uh philadelphia among different communities right mm-hmm. uh puerto ricans in philadelphia um Miami Cubans, Dade. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. mexico or excuse me mexican americans in texas uh um, some of which were border towns. And then I think some of which were like, you know, fourth generation, um, now sort of Protestant Mexican American communities. Um, but, um, the part of the issue, it seems to me is like who, what is providing the sense of America in which despite whatever, um, obstacles people see and whatever insults they are forced to bear provides them with the sense of themselves that is most appealing and the sense of their future that is most appealing. You know, like what is, where is that vision coming from? I don't think that it's, I think that the the fact that Trump appealed to so many people who presumably should have been so disgusted with him doesn't necessarily to me speak to his personal appeal, though I know a lot of people interpret it that way. You know, in part, I think it's just about who is, uh, who is suggesting to people, and I know this will sound like uh, contradictory, but who is suggesting to people that they can have a fuller identity as Americans, right? And if, if you read that, um, poll in the New York Times, but or the two pollsters who ran the piece in the New York Times like a month and a half ago, where um, they were t- first of all, where they found out that um, not only is Latinx not the preferred nomenclature, but it's not Latino either. It's actually Hispanic American. I think was what polled the highest. But they, there were these two pollsters who had talked to. Um, voters and found like expecting that um playing up trump's obviously brazenly at times nativist and racist rhetoric about immigrants expecting that playing into a sense of kind of racial identity and racial grievance would be the way to reach them and had found with latino voters that in fact that was alienating to them and that most didn't want to be, um, A, didn't want to be approached primarily through the lens of race. They were much more uh, sympathetic to class-based appeals. But also, I think even more fundamentally, that they didn't want to be approached as permanent victims and that they wanted to be approached as people who, whatever their beefs, like saw themselves as able to... uh, get as much as they could out of America. And that if there was something holding them back, I think it had more to do with 
you know, economic injustice than racial injustice. This was what this poll found that came out. Mm. Um, I don't know if either you guys saw this. Thomas Edsel wrote about it afterwards. And, you know, I think it seems to be borne out in part by the election results. But there are these weird things going on in American politics right now that defy um, left and right, defy sort of Democrat, Republican. And Trump has been such a singularly galvanizing figure. Everything sort of wraps around him. But, you know, those sorts of like which political party, which political vision is providing to people the self-conception that is most appealing to them and speaks to their hope for the future, which is what politics has to be about on some right. level. And it, it, it's not necessarily going to break down in terms of ethnicity. I mean, and particularly when, you know, when you're talking about Hispanics, you know, you know, I think my wife primarily thinks of herself as a Colombian American first, right? Um, it's a, it's a pretty remarkably diverse um, group. I mean, as any, any group is, but uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah I'm just, I'm saying that uh, I didn't mean to cut you off, Carlos. I just, no, no, I, fine. I bring it up because there are these, you know, these social realities that don't fit into some of, um, you know, that seem to defy a lot of the kind of, uh, the binary political choices we're presented with. And, um, this, this, you know, the, the, the attitudes people have about immigration and the attitudes immigrants have about immigration and about Americanness and, um, it's, it's not always, uh, it's not as straightforward as some of the kind of schematic, uh, ideological approaches would suggest is what I'm saying. And even it's it's more than than sort of how do you how do hispanics feel about about immigration policy but it's also just like hispanics also feel about other things right i mean it's not right. it's not it's not sort of the and and that what that's what feels sort of so kind of condescending um you know when when the when the republicans lost in 2012 you know you had the 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 rnc you know autopsy, autopsy. What happened and the whole thing was like you know we got to get right on immigration policy or Spanish <laughs> is going to hate us you know like as as, as as if like that's it there's your there's your magic you know your 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 magic bean and the the but it also relates to to the identity politics story in that i didn't like when when the story started coming out about say Miami Dade and and how um you know how it Trump did much better there than 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 expected, my immediate thought is that like if this becomes a a trend that that Republicans or that that Hispanics are not sort of you know um you know default Democrats or default liberals and that this whole notion that you know demography will change everything and eventually you know demography will sort of usher in this, this era of, of, of liberal politics that I can see Hispanics being defined out of people of color in America. Um, well, they, 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 that, that already started as soon as those election right, results. Came right. In. Immediately. Right. And, and, and pretty soon it's, it's just going to be that, that, you know, Hispanics become, um, are, are no longer honorary people of color and, and that, that, 
electoral politics trumps identity politics. Right. right? White adjacent is the phrase that's been used for. Oh, is that uh, is that for is that Asians for Asian okay. Americans oh, okay. have been when they're politically uh, inconvenient or white adjacent. Yeah, and I think that's going to happen. And 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 frankly, like you know, Hispanic, you know, you don't have everyone knows it. It's I mean, it's 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 not a race, right? Like you know, you right. can you can any any kind of 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 Hispanic, um, and so that that will that will change a lot conceivably in 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 electoral politics. Um, but to me, it's just fascinating because of the way that it's that as you say, it's starting to to reshape identity politics as well. Yeah. So, you know, so we could, we could go on, uh, on this for, for a long time. Um, we have gone on for a I know, long time. I know, I know. We, we, uh, I was, I was going to tell you my story <laughs> about, uh, about doing an event with Francisco Cantu where, where we got protested. Um, but, uh, oh, I like oh, man, tell that real quickly, Phil. You I like tell that story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a great book. Um, yeah. It's, it's in the immigration chapter. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, yeah, you end with it. It's, Do um, the thirty-second version of the protest story. So, yeah, okay, all right. So he was, I was interviewing him in the Poet Tom Slay, and uh, there'd been like a sort of misleading headline about his book, with, which so people started claiming that he was an apologist for the Border Patrol and U.S. immigration policy, which I think Carl, you can back me up, but that is not the, that's not the point that of is, his book. That is, that is not anywhere near the point of his book. Right. So there's like this group of like. You know, they look like graduate students or college students, like handing out flyers, urging people to ignore Kantu's lies and instead go to them, you know, outside the bookstore. And then, uh, and actually, ironically, I think one of the organizations that if you went to that website, um, they would say stuff about things that the, um, uh, the Border Patrol did, which was actually information they'd gotten from Kantu. But anyway, um, so we start the event and then they come in, they start like shouting, you know, shouting slogans. Uh, at one point, there's like a Mexican American dude in the audience who had been like there, interested in hearing, and he starts cursing them out in Spanish uh, because he wants to hear Cantu speak, and they're not letting him. And then eventually, he just like finishes cursing in Spanish. He goes, Damn, are "White people always like this." Um, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, then they start shouting, "How much money was your advance? You're profiting out of violence. How much money did you make?" Uh, uh, to which he answered, a lot less than I'd be making if I stayed in the Border Patrol. How much money do you think writers make? Uh, <laughs> at which point, like the Brooklyn literary audience cracked up because they all knew. And he was like, if I stayed in the Border Patrol, I'd have health care or pension. <laughs> like, I love all the different communities that are coming together at this event. This is phenomenal. <laughs> and then, like, yeah. Um, <laughs> eventually like the they threatened to the, bring in the cops and the, all the they left and we were able to finish the event but yeah that was it was something so um uh should, should we ask you uh carlos um the question that we are supposed to ask every time uh if you were to live your life by this manifesto how would you do it what you're saying that my book is the manifesto yeah if your book is the manifesto um, what, what does this tell you as a citizen going forward well uh the, the morning that the election was called for Joe Biden, um, my my daughter was at her Irish dancing uh, lesson. That that tells you sort of the 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 mix yeah. of cultures in uh, in in America in my home. The um and so when she comes back, you know, she gives me this big hug and says, "Daddy, you never have to read another Trump book again." <laughs> <laughs> 
smart kid. <laughs> he, she, she's ten years old. And that was, it wasn't like, you know, oh, you know, I'm, I'm happy the election has a result. I'm happy this new president or, you know, like she just, uh, she said, you never have to read another Trump book. Um, and that, that may be the best way to, to, um, to live this out. But, but more, more seriously, I think if I were, um, and God, I hadn't thought about how I would live by this book, but I think that what, um, what I've learned through this book was, um, or what I concluded at least is that the the most important books of the Trump era are not about Trump at all. And that what the, the, the ones that actually really spoke to me and really enlightened me and that I hope I will be able to focus on reading more books like this um, were those that showed how uh, all these battles are, are ever present in, in the American story. And that gives me both um, in some ways more despair, but also more hope. That's great. All right. Should we move on to uh, decent people then? Yeah. Phil, you want to set this up a bit? Yeah. So this is from Garth Greenwell's Cleanness. I, I, I love this book. I think he's an exceptional author. Um, I actually read this. Uh, I got an advanced copy and I read, read this book um, while I was traveling through Iraq last December. Um, and it is... It's about a, it's a sort of series of chapters, all the same characters, an expat teaching in Sofia, Bulgaria, and um, he's gay, uh, and you know a lot of it deals with the sort of the center of the book is this relationship that he had had, um, that was sort of real and moving, and then the sort of aftermath of that. Um, but the particular chapter decent people is about protests against the government, uh, this sort of popular uprising against corruption in the government. And so the narrator, you know, who sort of feels like an outsider is in a, he's in a taxi and the taxi driver is kind of, you know, doesn't really believe in, um, in the protests. He's kind of cynical. He was there when, the, when communism fell, you know, they were proud, they were organized, you know, he could have gone anywhere, but he stayed here. He thought we we're going to be free. We we're going to make something new, but we didn't. It was the same assholes. And then, and then the character goes in, he meets a journalist friend who's also cynical about the protests. He doesn't think they're organized enough. They don't have enough ideas. Um, but then he falls along with the protests and gets kind of caught up in them. Um, and, the description of that I feel is, is really sort of well done. And then he meets a student and it intersects with him teaching them about Walt Whitman's democratic visas. Um, and it sort of carries on with the protest. Um, but yeah. So what did, what did, uh, what did you, what did you think of it? I had not read, uh, Greenwell before and I, um, I, I loved this chapter and I want to read um, I want to read the book. I want to go back to his first novel, which apparently is, is a similar mm-hmm. setting. It's also set in, set in Bulgaria, a, a sort of expat teacher. Um, and there were, there were so many things that, that leaped out for me. One was just the, the, the nature of, of political protest you know, and and there's different people he he talks to, and uh, you know, starting starting with with the cab driver and others, all see 
the protests differently, right? And and like yeah. at one point he says it's it's more like a parade, it's more like a fair, it's it's more like a party, you know. And yeah. Only and only when things get intense does it start to feel like a real protest. You know, there's a there's a scene where suddenly he's not sure what's going to happen, right? right? right. And that and that that uncertainty is is the moment when it seemed real. Yeah. Right? And, there, it might get violent. Right, right. And, you know, and then it, it stops because, you know, someone starts singing the anthem and suddenly the 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 national anthem and suddenly the sort of the, the pressure kind of just like like the valve opens a little bit. Um, but so, you know, that to me and in, in parallel with the the very different realities of the three people that he encounters right who are just given initials right d is the 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 writer journalist who you who you described um you know m is the student and s is the is the activist and you know d just you know he keeps that distance at all times um he doesn't he doesn't you know he's just kind of judging it more than participating in it all the time and i i sort of felt sometimes like that that's how i felt like in writing this book, I, I, I felt like I allowed, you know, you guys are very nice to call it a dialectic, you know, you know, another way, another way is just to say that I just kept my distance the whole time. Right. And, and, um, you know, and then M is his student who, you know, loves it, gets this great feeling out of it, but she knows she's leaving. She's leaving the country. She's going to go study in Berlin. Right. It's not really her problem anymore. And it's only S who's the LGBT activist who is, you know, most engaged in it and gets the least out of it. Right. right. And, 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 and those three, you know, he's kind of just meandering through the crowd, you know, meeting these different people. Um, and it's, you know, that's when it kind of feels like a party when he can just go from group to group. Right. right. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's only, only in the moment, like the only moment that there's real social protest is when you actually don't know what's going to happen. And as, as M puts it, when, you know, there's, they were scared and so were we, and that's, that's the only power of protest, right? Is that, is that uncertainty? And so um, I, I thought this was um, also just really kind of beautifully written. And I, I didn't know, I mean, I had forgotten in, in some moments, it just felt like I wasn't sure if I was in a novel, if I was in reality, you know, what was, what was happening and not in the cliched way that like, oh, he's a writer, you know, it must be autobiographical and some, you know, he's, 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 he's a novelist, a young novelist. It must be autobiographical. It just, it just felt um, it felt very natural. Has a yeah. very effective, immersive momentum that partly is, um, you know, a tribute to the how effective the the idiosyncratic grammatical style is. So he's fond of using commas where we might expect periods, which mm-hmm. creates not the effect of a run-on sentence, but the effect of events running together, which is something different. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's something immersive about the way in which it's written, like somebody on their way to something that's moving and that's building and, and that is sort of gathering momentum. And what's interesting is from the very beginning, as it gathers momentum, there's this anxiety over, whether the thing that's happening is sufficiently real or not. So the, you know, the taxi driver that it starts with is like, this isn't even a real protest, you know, 
they don't know how to protest uh, these youngsters. It's it's uh, you know there's something sort of fraudulent about it or shallow about it, and uh, and it doesn't sort of crystallize as something real until until it becomes. I think the what the word Carlos used was unpredictable, something like that. But yeah, it becomes all of a sudden it becomes volatile, right? Like it's not just a set piece. It's something where you can't actually control where the event is going to end up and you can't uh, curate the meaning that it's going to have. It's not a personal event, but um, I, I liked it. I, I found myself liking it more. The more I got into it, I, it, you know, it started off, uh, I mean, I thought the, the opening was interesting, but I wasn't quite sure of it. And then I got more and more pulled into it. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I thought the I thought the writing was sort of lucid but uh, compelling. At the beginning, I remember thinking, like, he's really – he's going with a cab driver. He's the expat and he's, like, talking to a cab driver. You know, right. and I was like, it's, right. yeah. like it's, it's, it's the classic foreign correspondent, you know, lazy correspondent right. thing, you know. Um, but, you know, but, but, but there was a point to, to, to the driver's story, right? And what he says, you know, the reason it's not a real protest is because he's not in it. Right. right? He's like – if it were serious, we'd be part of this. You know, right. like, that's what they're all saying we, on some level. Right, right, yeah. right, exactly. But 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 they are able to keep their distance, except for S. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the 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 you know the journalist, there's like these people who want them to be more engaged. The journalist is like, you know, what's the good of the movement without uh, ideas? And there's like the you know the writer. Um, it's like, no, no, you, you can't write that. You have to say what the feeling is. It's the future they want. You should do what you can to help them. Uh, if you had children, you'd see it differently, right? Mm. That, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of, <laughs> there's the pose of difference. And then it's like, no, like you're a journalist, you're a writer, you're complaining about the fact that they don't have ideas, you know, they're doing something, you know, don't don't critique join them right right I, I don't know that that's not tragic though you know? no, no, it is I mean, because yeah. that's that's the that's not the stance of the the story that's the stance of the writer there's a writer character inside right. the story at the protest in the story right right um but y- you don't get the sense and there's this sort of you know this thing about whitman um you know who you know whitman uh in democratic vistas thought like that you know, what we needed was original authors and poets who will announce a sort of native expression uh, spirit, right? That, you know, what we really need is a class of, of native authors who are going to be like the, the kind of priests of, of the new American religion and will help define, you know, our democratic republic in a, in a way that will sort of breathe new life into it, uh, you know, and affect the pop, like affect everything in, in, in the polity. Um, and what sort of, but Whitman is also this sort of, uh, deeply individualistic, right? Um, and one of the things that happens later is M who's young and gets gets caught up in the protest is like engaged with the protest, but she's also leaving because there's better opportunities outside of Bulgaria. Right. And, um, and struggling with whether that's a, yeah, Yeah. is that a betrayal, the fact that she's going to leave? 
Right. And so, you know, and he, he just says, you know, you only have one life. I said, I want you to be happy. I want you to go where you can live most fully. And it's just sort of this like, you know, the kind of uh, Whitman patriotism and Whitman individualism just kind of utterly conflictual. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the, the, the role that sort of writers and ideas play is this kind of current uh, that goes throughout, but it's a very skeptical current. And in the context of protest, right, is where – because uh, when he's talking to the students, right, he has the kind of the flashback scene where he's talking to his students in uh, – his, his Bulgarian students. And he's explaining that, you know, people have to that, – that Whitman calls for like the, the thoughtful merger. You have to come together without <laughs> losing your ability to think as, you know – and that democracy depends on that. But of course, like, you know, protest is collective action. Thought is individual action, right? And <laughs> – and, and, you know, how do you, how do you like make those come together when, um, and I think what, what feels like sort of his, his, his outcome of that, of that tension is that, is that you can't, is that, or, or that it's, you know, it was very difficult in this, in this setting for that to happen because he, he had no idea how it was going to turn out when that, that sort of tension became became strongest the practical historical answer is profoundly anti-democratic and it's with a vanguard that's how you reconcile that is that the Mm. the effusion of feeling and participatory energy of the masses is channeled by a small vanguard that does have ideas that has a definite sense of uh to what end they are directing the action you know and vanguard has a certain 20th century ideological connotation you could just as easily say leaders um political leaders but somebody who's formulating the ideas and who's developing the sense of where this is going to end up and how one event leads to another and in that sense you do need ideas right that the it is it's whitman is also right i mean it's it's necessary to have both but then it's necessary but not sufficient because you not only need to have both, you need to have them working in concert in the right way. And, um, and this is a, a very difficult thing in the best conditions. And I think in some ways to sort of come back to the, some of the themes um, in Carlos's book that it's, it appears to be even easier at the moment, given the advantages of communications technologies in connecting networks of people. But uh, those advantages also um, have corollaries and advantages they provide, you know, sort of counter-democratic forces and the state specifically, especially in unfree societies to, uh, you know, not, not only to like surveil or to crush a democratic movement, though obviously all of that is happening, but also to just make ideas diffuse and to dilute the power of some of these ideas by surrounding them in uh, with noise, effectively. Right. So, you know, Whitman writes um, 
For I say the true nationality of the states, the genuine union when we come to a moral crisis is and is to be, after all, neither the written war nor written law, nor, as is generally supposed, either self-interest or common pecuniary or material objects, but the fervid and tremendous idea, melting everything else with resistless heat and solving all lesser and tr- definite distinctions and vast, indefinite spiritual and emotional power. And that seems crazy to me, right, in the present era, right? Um, the fervid and tremendous idea melting everything else with resistless heat. And it's precisely that because there's um, it, that um, I think that the movements of people in mass are more about, uh, they're more effective and emotional uh, and not, and, 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 endlessly diverse right um and those fissures can be sort of found uh with much greater specificity in the modern era um but you know at at the end of the day like what is it that turns the protest from 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 violence to to a feeling of sort of like warm solidarity in is somebody singing the national anthem Right. And it's, it's the aesthetic qualities of the national anthem, right. Um, that makes it, uh, let me see, where is it? Uh, that makes it like the right thing for the moment. Um, yeah. I, I, it's I love restrained and minor key as much mournful as celebratory. Right. <laughs> Sorry, you're saying, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just going to say that I, I sort of laughed in that moment when you, when you mentioned the anthem, because when I, when that first happened in the, in the, in, in the, in the chapter, I, I thought like, oh, is it somehow like nationalism is what's diffusing, is what's, you know, like easing this tension, you know, mm-hmm. but then it, it, it wasn't even that it just, it, you're right. It was just like, it was like the atmospherics of it right? that, that was, that was, you know, ending that that um that moment of pressure which then made me just wonder well then what what was it about right what was it what was really going on there and in hearing hearing you all talk about about um this this part of the this part of the story just reminded me a little bit about the 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 you know vanguard whatever you want to call it the 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 group of intellectuals who are in some ways trying now to retroactively sort of find some kind of ideological coherence to Trumpism um, that can go beyond Trump, right? Like, how do you turn this, especially now with, you know, now that you know you've got 70 million voters for it, right? Like, how do you turn this into something um, that can that can last? And it's people like like Rich Lowry um, and and others that are trying to fashion a sort of new conservative nationalism. Um, but in in many ways, you know, at least in in my reading of some of those books, it was it was more about um, you know finding ways to uh, sort of appease and and placate and continue kind of sucking up to the leader. You know, it, it wasn't even about a real coherent plan um, in the way that you know the um, you know D is saying in the story, like you know you can't have energy without a plan is, is nothing. It doesn't build anything. Um, 
but I don't know that there that there is one beyond the energy that Trump brings. But let me make two totally unconnected points, if I may. <laughs> the first is that um, one of the things that's so fascinating about the past four years is this sort of electric relationship between symbols and social realities that's hard to read, like legitimately hard to read. There's something, a distortion that has entered the field, you know, a degree of volatility in the relationship between symbol and reference that is, feels unique to the past four or five years. And it is, you know, in some ways, um, you know, frankly, exciting. And when I say it's exciting, I mean, I think that many people have felt the same way. That's why there were 1200 books about Trump, right? Is because people wanted to read this stuff and they wanted to write about it. But the thing about the incoherence of Trumpism, while like on one level, I completely agree with, and you know, there's a a strong case to be made that the problem with Trump is that he wasn't enough of a Trumpist, right? Like uh, Ross Douth had had a column earlier this year where he makes what I think is a very obvious and um, astute point that when presented with the ideal Trumpist crisis, right, a a plague arriving from China, he totally botched it, right? And his response was muddled, incoherent, sometimes like histrionic and over the top, often totally uh, – you know, just like muddled and he wasn't doing enough. Generally, his tweets were, you know, the sort of most aggressive thing he was doing. You know, he sort of presented with the perfect Trumpist moment. He made very little of it, actually, and to the great detriment of the country in some ways, um, because actually a more Trumpist response in the sense of, a, you know, a degree of, uh, I mean, I'm not... <laughs> trying to think how to phrase this so I don't come off as pro-authoritarian, but a degree of more aggressive um, uh, top-down managerial leadership in the early days of the coronavirus, you know, was something you could have imagined FDR having done, for instance, would have been a good thing, right? But that didn't happen. And instead, we got these like scattered calls to private businesses with all the deal-making stuff. Um, So there's this, that's, the incoherence of Trumpism on the one hand. On the other hand, you have this major realignment in American politics where, you know, you have all these conservatives talking about how the GOP is the working class party now. And you can certainly overstate that, but the structural conditions of that, they're right. It's true. There's been a very significant um, shift and that shift is not as racially polarized as uh, I think many commentators thought it was going to be in the lead up to 2020 as the gains for Trump among, um, you know, one uh, racial demographic after another who was expected to, he was expected to, if anything, lose ground based on, um, you know, who he is and instead made gains, sometimes significant gains, is part of it. And the other part of it is, the, the the class separation between the Democrats and the Republicans has gotten far more stark. And this is the this election was the culmination of something that's been going on for a while. But that is, you know, if you're looking for what Trumpism would be after Trump, if it's possible, um, it would be a kind of working class populism. 
Um, and, and, you know, multiracial working class populism is the line Josh Hawley used. And I think that's uh, a bit pie in the sky in the sense that um, there's no actual infrastructural basis for that. And there's no donor class for that. The the GOP donor class is not interested in a, a multiracial working class party. Um, yet, at the same time. <laughs> yes, that doesn't sound like, yeah. Right. You know, Sorry. it's like the, the same way they weren't interested in Trump, frankly, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, you have this major realignment in the American uh, political scene it, that the parties haven't caught up to yet fully in their self-conception. Uh, and then the other totally unrelated point is that the line in Whitman that the protagonist in the story dwells on when he's, and this is uh, when he's talking to M, his student, or one of the lines he dwells on is that Whitman pauses in Song of Myself to, uh, to, 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 to make clear that when others jeer at a prostitute in the crowd, he does not. And I forget right. what, I forget the exact line, but he abstains, right? And, and so in the midst of this exciting and thrilling tumult of democratic feeling, you know, this enthralling kind of uh, democratic energy, it takes an ugly turn. And the ugly turn is that, you know, they, they say the crowd says demeaning things to the prostitute. But Whitman pointedly, but, you know, it's, a, it's only a line or two, uh, he does not. He does not jeer. He retains his humanity in the midst of the crowd and in the midst of a, a crowd in which he wants to participate, right? He's not like, he doesn't view the whole thing as rotten, but he recognizes the temptation. It comes, I forget the name of it, but there's another Whitman poem that is uh, the whole poem, basically. It's him sort of celebrating uh, a prostitute in, in a sort of ceremonious way, ceremonial way. Uh, and yeah, there's something is, significant. I, I found a line from, from Cleanus where he says, um, there's a crowd. So there's like, there's one, there's only like, he's always sort of, he's like naming things and making an occasion for you to love them. He wanted to stitch America up. I said, he wants to break all the divisions, divisions down. There's only one time he does the opposite. It's in the same list when he puts a prostitute right next to the president. Uh, and let's we'll skip ahead. Uh, it's the one time Whitman separates himself. He says, as is the crowd making fun of the prostitute, they laugh at you, but I do not laugh at you. And that's the problem. I hurried on. That's the problem with democracy. The danger of crowds is the problem with the protests too. How do you take a crowd and turn it into a populace? How do you mm. take the voice of a crowd and turn it into the vox populi, the voice of a people? And at the end of this story, so we talked about the, the sort of the gay rights protesters. He's gotten caught up in the protest. He's sort of feeling all of the good feelings. And then he comes back upon them uh, and they've been beaten up. Right. Um, and while everyone else is excited and he's getting, I think, like a text message from D saying that he was wrong, that he's into it, he decides he's going to stay and remain with this small group of people among the mass who have been brutalized. But not in a grandiose way, right? He's not yeah. like, here, I will make my stand. He's just, right, I'm no. not going to go to the bar with them. I'm going to sit here with them. Right. 
even though you know he's not it, i wasn't any help at all but i let my bag drop to the grass anyway right. i sat down right. with them to wait right one thing that that struck me um in in thinking about the the motivations of the protesters that i almost just laughed when i first read it is that you know their their signs they were they were calling for um uh, uh it's ostavka which means resignation right and 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 then it hit me like oh they want some like political leaders to resign right but first i just thought like like resignation is the problem like you know like like people being resigned to their fate and like the the, mm-hmm. the cab driver uh feeling just utter resignation like you know i i blew my chance to leave the country when i could and and now i'm just stuck here you know and and i i felt that you know that that anger that that S that the, the, the gay rights activist is, is showing towards the, towards the end saying like, I just, I, I hate this country. Like nothing ever changes, you know, like resignation felt like this, this weird, this weird theme that, that, that percolated just, you know, and for me it was just because of like the weirdness of the word, but it, it took me to, and this is probably a a better version of like how I might want to live the, the, the manifesto because I've been stewing this whole time over like how I could possibly do that. And (laughs) the, you know, I was, I was tough on the, on the resistance books uh, early on in our conversation, but there was one, um, one essay in one anthology that I just loved. And it was this anthology called radical hope that had a lot of the kind of essays that I was, I was kind of dissing earlier, but there's, one by the novelist um, Katie Kitamura, and she is addressing it to her daughter, and that's also a classic thing of all these things. They're like a- addressing it to loved ones and and that. But she she's addressing it to her young daughter who's just learning how to speak, and she says, "This is no time for complacency, no time for inaction. This is undoubtedly true, but at the same time, we need to defend another way of thinking and being, one that allows for hesitation, for nuance and mutability." I have a distrust of certitude, even when I agree with the essential position being advocated. I don't think the urgency of our situation means we cannot afford uncertainty. I need to believe in the value of the doubt I now feel and the ability to create a space for slowness of thought and conviction. I worry you will grow up in a time of ideological haste, wild conviction, and coarsened thought. Right, And that, that impulse to slow down when, when everyone around you is is you know caught up in the urgency of the moment um i think is just utterly vital and and is that's another thing that runs through so much of of the literature of of the trump era um the inability to to slow down to to resist wild conviction and course and thought and and that I, I end the resistance chapter with with um, with this passage because I feel that it's the most important way to resist. Yeah, that's uh, here. here. I, I think slowing down, reflecting, resisting the urge to um, feel the need to fill every momentary silence with a statement of absolute political conviction is you know it's like uh, far far from even any political stuff it's, it's just the way to remain a person so yeah um may you all continue to be people is that how we're gonna end it 
We could. I mean, I was just throwing it out there. It feels like an appropriate. <laughs> If you're gonna, if if you're gonna still, you know, may you continue to be a person at the beginning, like that's a, uh, you know, yeah, bookends, yeah. baby. There you bookends, go. Bookends, baby. <laughs> and from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs> 